When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's just after four in the afternoon on Saturday the 4th of February 1922 and Coogee Beach is in shock. Milton Coughlin, 18 years old, a popular surf lifesaver, has just died in hospital after being mauled by a shark in the waters out front of the clubhouse. Today's surf carnival, which was just about to start when he was attacked, has been postponed. Lifesavers from Coogee and from visiting clubs pay their respects, standing bareheaded in the clubhouse. In their midst, acclaimed by all as a hero is Jack Chalmers the North Bondi lifesaver and champion belt swimmer who put himself in harm's way to rescue Milton from the jaws of the shark. Then they were helped ashore by Australian Olympic superstar Frank Beaurepair, who'd simply dived in and put himself at huge risk. Giving a little speech, the Coogee Club vice president says Jack Chalmers has shown the greatest display of sheer pluck he's ever witnessed. Jack, though, doesn't really want to talk about what he's just done. What he will do is point to his soldier's medal and say... It is the spirit of this that made me do it. He saw a mate in danger, and he acted first and thought about it later. In recognition of his bravery, a hat sent around for Jack, and soon more than seven pounds is collected. A Sunday Times reporter tries to induce the hero to give an interview, but he won't. Instead, after he's congratulated by hundreds of mates, Jack quietly slips away from the club rooms and goes home. Frank Beaurepair, meanwhile, downplays his own heroism. Quote, I'm glad I was there and to have been of some assistance, but to tell you the truth, I'm too upset to talk about it. It was a horrible experience. What Frank will say is that Jack Chalmers deserves the Victoria Cross. But as the victims being mourned and the heroes celebrated, the monster responsible is still lurking nearby. Surely it has to be one of the several sharks that's spotted in the channel. 
One's even lifted up onto the rocks by a wave before another wave sweeps it back into the water. Four fishermen are trying to bait these man-eaters, but they don't have any luck, and as darkness falls, they give up and the beach finally empties of people. But when tomorrow dawns, this story is only going to get bigger, and a cry for a war on sharks is only going to get louder. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the second and final part of the Forgotten Australia episode, Shark Attack of the Century. As we heard in part one, previous fatal shark attacks in Sydney's harbours and rivers, both confirmed and presumed, hadn't resulted in blanket newspaper coverage or calls for a crusade against the creatures. The death of Milton Coughlin was very different. He was the first person to be killed by a shark on a metropolitan ocean beach. These were the pleasure grounds that had come into their own in the past 20 years as places for surf bathing. Now, their waters were crimson, their reputations darkened. Yet, it wasn't as if people hadn't been aware of the risks. There had been close calls on ocean beaches, and it had only been a matter of time until someone was taken. But it was also the way Milton was killed. In full daylight, in front of thousands of people, and in spite of heroic, well-known men risking themselves to rescue him. There'd never been a story like it in Australian history. As an example of how the coverage differed, in January 1919, when teenager Richard Simpson was killed by a shark in the harbour, it resulted in just one article in the Sun newspaper. Cut to February 1922, and the Sun would run a dozen stories about the Coogee attack and its aftermath. There are a lot of witnesses to talk to, plenty of photos to run, and there'd be developments that meant the story kept on giving. The Sun and the Evening News first ran the story on Saturday evening, the 4th of February. Both papers put it on page 5, their sports pages, likely because it was too late to reset their front pages. And both papers gave it 500 words or so, laying out the basics of the horror and the heroism. But that wasn't nearly enough for Hugh D. McIntosh. He wanted it much bigger in his paper, the Sunday Times, the following day. Hugh D. McIntosh's nickname was Huge Deal because he was one of Australia's most successful showbiz entrepreneurs with a special interest in sporting promotion. He'd taken over the Sunday Times in 1916 and he knew a circulation booster when he saw one. This newspaper boss had been at Bondi when he heard of the attack. The mogul jumped on the phone to the Sunday Times office and ordered his staff to open a subscription for Jack Chalmers, saying, for publication, quote, Sydney's beaches have known no more magnificent act of courage. Huge deal put his money where his mouth was, pledging 50 guineas, which was 52 pounds, 10 shillings. Adjusted for inflation, that's around $4,500 today. But a better indication of what it meant then was that it was equivalent to three months of the minimum wage, meaning it would be about nine grand today. Huge Deal was going to get every penny's worth, though, by making a huge deal of this story and of the drive to reward Jack Chalmers. When he was on the phone from Bondi, he clearly instructed his staff to hold the front page. They did, and the next day, the Sunday Times was dominated by the attack. The front page headline screamed... Into the Jaws of Death, Scene of Splendid Heroism at Coogee, Terrible Surf Fight with Man-Eating Shark, Victim Dies After Rescuers Take Him From Monster. There was a photo of Milton, two of Jack Chalmers, and a portrait of Frank Beaurepair. On the front page and inside page, the articles ran to more than 2,000 words. 
the various subheadings such as The Shark Wins and Laughing at Death presented irresistible drama to readers. The other Sunday papers, The Sun and The Truth, both ran substantial articles too. While Sydney siders were reading these yarns, the story was getting new life as reporters sought out Jack Chalmers. The Sydney Morning Herald caught him at his home in Malara, where he lived with his wife Jessie. In part one, I said that they had three children, which was what was widely reported at the time. Turned out they only had one at that point, a son named Jack Jr. The mistake arose because Jack Sr. was often seen at Bondi with three kids, though two of them belonged to his sister. Anyway, the Sydney Morning Herald would report of meeting the hero, quote, Mr. Jack Chalmers made little of his gallant act and refused to speak at any length on the subject where it directly concerned himself. Jack would praise Milton Coughlin and Frank Beaurepaire. What he would say of his own actions was this, quote, If I had stopped to think too long, my heart would probably have failed me. The fact is that I went in first and worried about it after, and am still worrying, for I shall never forget the shocking sight. I dreamed all last night about it, and when I woke up this morning, a picture of the whole episode was still before my eyes. Jack would also give interviews to the Daily Telegraph and The Sun that day. Providence, he said, had been watching over him, though he admitted he'd rather face the gas and shells of the Western Front again than have a rematch with that shark. On Monday, the Sydney Morning Herald, covering the story for the first time, gave it 1,800 words. The Daily Telegraph, as part of its coverage, ran a headline, The Surf Bather's Greatest Enemy, over a picture of a 14-and-a-half-foot dead shark on a boat ramp. The beast was identified as a whaler, which was said to be, quote, a source of danger to surf bathers along the ocean beaches. A bronze whaler was what witness Frank Baker had likely meant when he said that Milton had been taken by a whale shark. Yet this specimen hadn't been caught at Coogee, and the paper didn't make it clear when and where it had been hooked. On the Sunday and Monday, fishermen were busy at Coogee using the kerosene tin float method to try to catch and kill the man-eater. They were unlucky and came home empty-handed. But luck was about to change for Jack Chalmers. On the Sunday, another £75 had been collected from the public for him at Coogee and Bondi. Surf clubs announced they wanted to raise £1,000 from members statewide and from people and businesses in Sydney. Jack was also to be recommended for the Albert Medal for Bravery, which was considered the civilian equivalent of the Victoria Cross. Children, too, would learn of his heroism, with the Minister of Education ordering that an account of the event should be written and put into the school magazine, and this would be done in stirring detail in May that year. The New South Wales Premier, James Dooley, sent his condolences to Milton Coughlin's family and sent rapturous congratulations to Jack Chalmers. This was a very Sydney story, but it made news all over Australia. The Melbourne Argus, for instance, ran half a dozen stories about the attack and Jack Chalmers. No less a sporting figure than John Wren, Melbourne's famous power broker, was moved to chip in £50, his name appearing beneath huge deals in the Sunday Times' ongoing tally of donations. Milton Coughlin's funeral was held on Monday. The route from his house to St Jude's Church of England to Randwick Cemetery, was lined by thousands of people, with the casket all but hidden by floral arrangements sent from all over the state. There can't have been too many dry eyes when Mrs Coughlin put her arms around Jack Chalmers and said, quote, 
I can never thank you enough for trying to save my boy. Mr. Coughlin lavished praise on him too. Without Jack, his son would have died alone and in terror, rather than surrounded by comforting faces. And without Jack, there might not have been a body to bury. Milton's funeral would be the subject of more large newspaper features. On Wednesday, the Sydney Mail, another illustrated paper, gave the attack and the funeral the full front pictorial page and almost all of an inside page. The Daily Telegraph noted, Every citizen of Sydney appears anxious to pay tribute to the gallantry of the ex-digger. Jack Chalmers, it said, had fired the public imagination in a remarkable way. No one could possibly have an issue with that. But as a letter writer to the Daily Telegraph observed, quote, The name of Mr. Frank Beaurepaire, who rendered such valuable help and showed such remarkable pluck, is in all later reports conspicuous by its absence. Charles Green, who'd also gone into the surf still wearing his trousers, rarely figured at all in the coverage. And another man, known as Mr. Fletcher, who'd been set to dive in, was barely a footnote. Clearly, there was a hierarchy of heroism. What was certain was that Jack Chalmers was to be rewarded. But how are sharks to be punished? The Evening News said there should be a bounty put on the beasts. Quote, Catching sharks is now merely a sport. Not a popular one, like catching brim and flathead, but simply a sport. That is to say, there is no incentive to anyone in Sydney to set lines for them. Yet, each shark caught means less risk of life for surfers. The paper argued a reward should be paid for them, like dingoes and foxes out west. There were other suggestions too. What about using planes to spot sharks and alert surf bathers? But maybe aviators didn't have to be used only in a defensive sense. They could go on the offensive. As soon as a man-eater was seen, a pilot could swoop in and chuck a bomb at the brute. The Sydney Mail offered a simpler solution. Surf bathers should just wear belts with knives. If Milton had been able to whip out a blade, he might have been able to save himself. Meanwhile, an old sea salt told Truth that there was a natural way to be rid of the threat. Quote, If you only had a shoal of North Pacific sea lions around Sydney beaches, surfing on the Australian coast would be absolutely safe as far as sharks are concerned. Sea lions, this fellow explained, could rip sharks to shreds in mere seconds. How to induce sea lions to guard Sydney? That wasn't explained. On Thursday, a shark took a fisherman's bait at Coogee, but the beast broke free before it could be caught. In the wake of this, though, the postponed surf carnival was now moved to Bondi. Jack Chalmers was still set to compete, so the public would get a chance to see him in action. But people would have another opportunity also. Theatrical producer Sir Benjamin Fuller arranged for Jack to appear at the Grand Opera House in a week-long engagement as an added attraction to a seal show already in residence. Have you seen Jack Chalmers? asked the ads in the entertainment pages of the city papers. Here's your opportunity. Pay your tribute to the hero. You'd be able to do so at matinee and evening sessions. Quote, Special note, Jack Chalmers will appear wearing the costume in which he carried out his thrilling rescue and give an exhibition of swimming, life-saving and diving. The money raised from this spectacular would go to a separate fund for the hero. But the Lord Mayor and other prominent men who were now behind the official Jack Chalmers fund weren't standing for it. Though their reason for objecting wasn't made public, it's not hard to guess. 
If Jack Chalmers was up on stage beside performing seals, the public might perceive him as cashing in and stop donating. Sir Benjamin Fuller appeared to see the sense in this, quickly cancelling the show and pledging himself to help raise money through the main fund. The original fund, launched by the Sunday Times, was still raking in money, and the newspaper kept the story alive. On Sunday the 12th of March, Jack Chalmers and his wife and son graced the front page. When the paper's reporter suggested that if Jack was a bachelor, he'd be worried to death by hero-worshipping girls, the hero smiled and replied, quote, Anyone who knew my wife and kitty would think as I do, that I'm the luckiest man on earth. The Sunday Times revealed new details of Frank Bow Repair's heroism too, with Cronulla Surf Club members telling Mr C.D. Patterson, president of the Surf Lifesaving Association, that he shouldn't be overlooked. As Frank had been about to jump into the channel from the rocks, these men had seen a shark in the water right in front of him. Quote, We shouted a warning and Bow Repair delayed a little and then got onto a rock further out. Frank had then dived in, knowing the danger that possibly awaited. Surely something would have to be done to reward him. But the problem was that the funds were being specifically raised for Jack Chalmers. Diverting the money would be illegal. It wasn't what contributors had signed up for. This hardly seemed fair, but it was the way it was. While Frank Beaurepair looked like he'd miss out, the Sunday Times was doing alright for itself from all of this coverage. The paper proudly noted that the Surf Lifesaving Association's Mr. Patterson said its coverage had been, quote, the most complete, lucid and correct of all the metropolitan newspapers. The paper had been instrumental in stirring the public to full realisation of the wondrous bravery of charmers. The Sunday Times would soon report it had enjoyed a huge increase in circulation, so much so it had to buy new plants and premises to cope with, quote, business unapproached in any other period in its history. Clearly, shark stories were good for business, and this lesson wasn't lost on other newspaper owners and editors then and later. The Sydney Mail ran an exclusive full-page photo of Jack Chalmers on the 15th of February. This same day saw the story told all over again by all the witnesses at the coroner's court. Jack Chalmers was described by the son as a brown-skinned, blue-eyed young man who told his story in a matter-of-fact fashion so that each quiet word sang to them afresh of his amazing courage. The coroner then sang his praises anew too. But what were words worth? Smith's Weekly, which styled itself as The Digger's Paper, printed an editorial from its founder, Joyton Smith. He argued that Jack Chalmers should have done that Opera House show and made some money for himself. As a digger who'd been left on the unemployment line, his sacrifice on the Western Front had been forgotten very quickly. Joyton Smith said, The public that forgot once will forget again. He was wrong about that. The various Jack Chalmers funds were soon above £1,000, then 2000 and then 3000 Back then, this was enough to buy two houses in Malara. It was an incredible outpouring of appreciation. But Joynton Smith had been right in one respect. The public's capacity to reward and remember would soon be shown to have its limits. Newspapers created the mania for chipping in for Jack Chalmers. Of course, every Jack Chalmers story was also a shark attack story, putting the threat at the front of people's minds. This didn't actually increase the risk, just the perception of risk. Shark attacks were rare. Milton Coughlin had been killed in the first Ocean Beach attack since white settlement began in Sydney. 
Sure, it would happen again, but the odds were it wouldn't be for a long time, and the odds were it wouldn't be you. So, was it safe at Coogee? After weeks of hunting, there was only one shark hooked and it had gotten away. To be on the safe side, most surf bathers were staying close to shore. Every passing day, though, eased worried minds. At around 10.55 on the morning of Thursday the 2nd of March 1922, lifesaver Jack Brown was on duty at Coogee. According to family information at Ancestry.com.au, Jack came into the world in 1888 in Gunnedah. Just before the start of the war, Jack was living on the North Shore where he was married and had two children. Around 1916, he started work as a lifesaver on Sydney beaches. In 1921, he was taken on as a lifesaver by Randwick Council and would also serve as a beach inspector. That morning, Jack had followed his usual routine. He'd gone for a swim to test the current and planted the safety flags. Now, he was standing at the top of the steps to the surf shed. There were some 30 people in the water. None were in more than a few feet deep and none were far from shore. Jack Brown was talking to his mate Bruce O'Grady about salmon fishing. Apparently some real beauties had been caught on the beach recently. But shoals of salmon also brought increased risks from sharks that followed them in. This could have been why Milton Coughlin had been attacked. Jack Brown had known the lad well. A group photo of Lifesavers published in the Daily Telegraph would show them sitting side by side on the sand. Ever since Milton's death, Jack had been worried about the shark returning. His anxiety was likely attended by the question, what if? The day Milton had died had been Jack's day off. What if he'd been rostered on that day? Would he have been able to save his young mate? Given everything that Jack Chalmers and Frank Beauregard had done, the answer was probably no. But it would have been natural for Jack Brown to ask, what if? One of the people enjoying the water on this Thursday morning was Mervyn Gannon. He was born in Dubbo in 1900, and he had a pretty rough start in life. When Mervyn was just three, his father, who was a train driver, fell from his engine while it was in motion and was killed in horrific circumstances. Mervyn's mother remarried, and the boy was sent to St Stanislaus College at Bathurst. But after his mum died in 1915, Merv then went to live with an aunt at Coonabarabran. Under an assumed name, Mervyn reportedly joined the AIF when he was 17. As the Catholic Weekly would report, quote, Despite his youth, he had an excellent war record. He saw active service in France and was in the midst of some of the most desperate battles of the war. On his return from the front, he took up motor engineering and displayed such an aptitude for the profession that a brilliant future was predicted for him. What the Catholic Weekly didn't report was that Mervyn had been in trouble with the law too. In January 1921, he and two other young men were charged with carnally knowing a 15-year-old girl. The case was serious enough for them to be committed to trial. When they faced court in April, they were acquitted. That's all the information I've been able to find on the case. It is reasonable to say, though, that even with an acquittal, such a serious charge could have put Mervyn under a cloud, and this might explain why he soon after moved to Sydney. By February 1922, he was living at the Normandy Flats in Coogee and, according to varying reports, working as a motor cleaner or a motor engineer. Mervyn shared his accommodations with a sailor named Thomas King, who would be at Coogee that day, and we'll hear more about him soon. 
Just before 11am, Mervyn was enjoying a bit of body surfing. He was 10 to 20 yards from shore in water that was about waist deep. Not far away, a man named Ernest Carr, who was well known in Coogee surf bathing circles, was shooting breakers too. Up on the clubhouse steps, lifesaver Jack Brown was scanning the water. Then he saw it, a big black fin knifing through the surf. The shark was 10 feet away from a bather. Jack said to his mate Bruce O'Grady, Oh Christ, there's a shark. Without thinking, Jack ran 40 or 50 yards to the water, shouting for people to get out. Surf bathers scrambled to the shore. As Jack ran in, he saw the shark attack Mervyn Gannon. In his official statement, Jack would say, quote, For a moment, he was dragged under the water. When he came up, his arm went in the air above his head. It had no hand on it. Then the shark attacked him again. He put up his other hand, and I could see from the blood which flowed from it that this hand was also torn. Gannon turned at that moment and got a shoot. This brought him about halfway into shore. Jack would say this moment to the Daily Telegraph, quote, The shark followed, turned over on his side and bit clean through one of his buttocks and laid the other open. I reached him and gripping him pulled him towards the shore. The shark flicked his tail, catching me on the side and disappeared. Jack called to Ernest Carr, who was already on the way and they each took one of Mervyn's arms. As they hauled him towards the shore, the shark attacked again. As Jack would tell the son, quote, It dashed at us, turned on its back and snapped at Gannon again, leaving a terrific gash in his back. Jack would say they'd been two or three paces from the shoreline when this final attack came and that the shark had tried to drag Mervyn back. He and Ernest Carr got Mervyn from the water and laid him on the sand. Jack asked Mervyn how he felt. The victim replied, All right, get me away as soon as you can, Brownie. Jack didn't know Mervyn. He assumed that Mervyn knew him by his widely used beach nickname. On the beach, Mervyn reportedly bore up with the sort of grit that had been displayed by Milton Coughlin. His nerve wavered though when he looked at his bloody arms and was heard to say, No chance for me. Mervyn would be given every chance. A quick-thinking ambulance officer had seen the attack and fetched bandages and a stretcher. An ambulance was soon on the scene and whisked the victim to St Vincent's Hospital. In the back of the vehicle, Mervyn told a police constable, quote, I think I must have stood on the shark. Yet that didn't jibe with what Jack Brown had said about seeing a fin immediately before the attack. Maybe Mervyn was just in shock. Certainly, he was in critical condition. His right hand was gone at the wrist. He'd lost two fingers on his left hand, which was also deeply cut, and suffered abrasions and bites to his right thigh. But the most serious wounds were those to his backside. His right buttock was almost torn off, and the left was sliced through. These injuries had left Mervyn's backbone exposed. Luckily, his spinal cord hadn't been damaged, nor had any of his organs been injured. If he survived, he'd probably be able to walk, and maybe have partial use of his left hand. Mervyn remained conscious the whole time. Later that day, in hospital, he'd be able to talk with an aunt who lived in Sydney, and then with his guardian aunt who came from Coonabarabran. He told them, quote, I'm not too bad, and I'm not going to die. This was another Sydney shark sensation, and the city had two new heroes to celebrate. Newspaper reporters swooped on the beach, and they found plenty of witnesses willing to talk. George Dent, who'd been standing near Jack Brown when he'd seen the shark, said the lifesaver had responded as quick as a flash. Quote, It was the gamest thing I ever saw. He was every bit as brave as Jack Chalmers. 
Ernest Carr said he'd tried to get to Mervyn after the lad had called Shark, but a wave had broken over him. Quote, when I looked up, I saw that Brown was by his side. He got there like lightning. Bruce O'Grady, son of the manager of the surf sheds, who'd been chatting with Jack, said, quote, It was one of the finest things you could see. A shaken woman, who'd been in the water when the attack began, said the same thing about Jack Brown. Jack hadn't just been fast, he'd also been brave, and the same went for Ernest Carr. Witness George Dent told the evening news that a ghastly tug of war ensued during the third attack. The paper reported, The rescuers clung to their man for dear life and the monster tugged at its victim. The arms and shoulders of the men shook with the intensity of the struggle and Dent, like other onlookers, had no doubt that only the pluck and tenacity of the rescuers saved Gannon from being carried out. A man named Cecil Galvin, who'd seen the attack, rang the evening news' office to say, quote, I will subscribe to any fund which I think should be organised to recognise a deed which was not one whit less than that of Chalmers. The paper headlined this, Great pluck, will it be recognised? Coogee surfers certainly believed it should be, that Jack Brown ought to be rewarded on par with Jack Chalmers. The Sun and Evening News had the story in front of readers that afternoon. Given the attack happened before 11 o'clock, reporters had more time to interview witnesses, and the initial stories were more detailed than the first articles about Milton Coughlin. The Daily Telegraph had the story the next morning, including an interview with Jack Brown. He told his story simply and modestly, reserving his praise for Mervyn Gannon. Quote, He was the gamest man I have ever seen. He didn't give a murmur, though he was conscious all the time and suffering horrible agony. But the Daily Telegraph had something new in its coverage. Somehow yesterday, all of the witnesses hadn't mentioned the vital role of a third brave man, Thomas King, of the Normandy Flats, where Mervyn also resided. The Daily Telegraph reported that Thomas King had been in the surf with his mate. He'd been the one to grab Mervyn first after the attack and pull him towards the shore. The shark had made subsequent attacks before Jack Brown had arrived. Thomas King had then helped him get Mervyn to shore as the shark made its last attack. Thomas King would say that he hadn't seen Ernest Carr in the water at all. Why had no one reported this man's heroism initially? The Daily Telegraph gave a clue when it said, quote, After Gannon had been taken away in the ambulance, King partially collapsed, and last night he was still suffering from the effects of his unpleasant experience. But Thomas King collapsing and being in some sort of shock didn't really explain why no witness had spoken of his role initially. The Milton Coughlin attack had been seen differently by different people, yet they'd all agreed on some basics. This wasn't like that. The bloodied waters had been muddied as to who'd done what and when. In view of this new information, the Surf Lifesaving Association made a public request for, quote, plain, unvarnished statements of actual eyewitnesses. Coogee Beach was closed to surf bathers on the... Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Friday. 
anyone who wanted to swim had to go to the enclosed sea baths, which did a roaring trade. A few hundred people turned up to watch the water. Out there, kerosene tins bobbed over baited hooks. Here's how the sun imagined what was happening beneath the surface. Quote, Somewhere in that delicate confection of bubbling jade green water and blown froth, a devil with cruel teeth and a madness for blood was lurking. A couple of shark fishermen were out after this devil. Jack Chalmers, then at Goulburn, told a Sun reporter, quote, I am sure it is the one that got Cochlin. It must be like a man-eating tiger that has tasted blood. There will never be peace there till the brute is caught. The New South Wales government announced a 100-guinea fund. Sharks were wanted, dead, not alive. A £50 reward was offered for the capture of the shark that had caused the death of Milton Cochlin and the injuries to Mervyn Gannon. Yet, how to prove it was the one? That'd be tricky. The hope was, when they slid it open, they'd find a partly digested hand or arm. But £5 each would also be given for the first dozen sharks of more than three feet in length captured at Coogee during March. As the Newcastle Sun headlined its story, War Against Sharks Government offers rewards. But maybe the war called for more than just men with hooks. Again, there was serious talk of using war weaponry, bombs, depth charges, and even machine guns. Critics of these militaristic proposals quite reasonably argued that strafing and bombarding the water might lead to the death or injury of the very surf bathers everyone wanted to protect. Less dramatic but more practical was the suggestion that observation towers be built on the beach for lifesavers. A shark-proof fence was also proposed. This had actually been suggested to Randwick Council around 1910, but was then rejected as impractical. Now coastal councils were going to have a conference to see what they could do about it. But Randwick's town clerk was sceptical, saying he doubted anything would come of this powwow. While people were talking, one man was ready to act. That Friday, he walked into the Sun's office in Sydney and said he was going to personally take the war to Coogee Sharks tomorrow morning at 10.30am. This was Jim Jackson, a deep sea diver with 15 years experience. He said he'd worked in the Pacific Islands and he'd worked for the Sydney Harbour Trust. Diver Jackson told the Sun he'd received permission from the state government for this mission. He was going to don his diving suit, put on his helmet, play out his air hose and wade into the breakers and go to the bottom of the channel where Milton Cochlin had been attacked. There, Diver Jackson would make himself human bait and he'd wait. He said, quote, When I find the shark, I know that it will attack me, but I shall be ready with my sheath knife. It will be a case of death to one of us. I will either kill it or it will kill me. Those were fighting words, but Diver Jackson had plenty of experience. He said he'd killed 195 sharks during his career. The largest had measured 27 feet. During his various battles, he'd had some close calls. As the Sun reported, quote, On one occasion, part of the diving suit was torn away by a shark, and on another occasion, the air pipe of his suit was nearly severed by a swordfish. Diver Jackson's plan was sensational, and word spread across Sydney, with thousands upon thousands of people planning their trips to Coogee the next morning. While Diver Jackson was decisive, the city's fathers were fretting about how to reward Jack Brown. 
the Lord Mayor said it had been a mistake to raise money solely for Jack Chalmers. It would have been better to establish a general national fund for heroes, from which other men could be rewarded. As North Bondi Surf Club argued, it would be illegal to divert money from Chalmers to Brown, just as it would be illegal to hand over money to Frank Bow Repair. A spokesman for the club said, Surely the country is not so impoverished that it must rob Chalmers to give Brown a reward for his gallant act. The time is opportune to start a special testimonial fund for Brown. The public would respond to it liberally. But would they, though? Other folks were talking about money, but Jack Brown remained a study in modesty. A reporter for The Sun found him on Coogee Beach, outside the dressing sheds, embarrassed that every half a minute someone would come up and say, Good for you, Jack, and fine work, old man. Jack said, I hate a fuss. They've been congratulating me ever since I came out of the water. All I did was what I am paid to do. Every man has a job to fill, and surf rescues are part of my duty. I didn't sign on to fight sharks, of course, but I couldn't stand by just because it wasn't the undertow that had got poor Gannon. It was really nothing to make a fuss over. Jack said he didn't want money that had been earmarked for Jack Chalmers. Now Thomas King's claims about the rescue were public, high-ranking police took statements from Bruce O'Grady and George Dent as to what they'd seen. These eyewitness accounts were passed up the chain to the state's Inspector General, who was satisfied as to Jack Brown's bravery. He recommended that the Royal Shipwreck Relief and Humane Society of New South Wales grant Jack their highest award, the gold medal. On Saturday, the 4th of March, at 5.10 in the morning, Mervyn Gannon died in St Vincent's Hospital. His wounds had become gangrenous. Like little Alfred Australia Howe all the way back in 1837, surviving a shark bite and blood loss was no guarantee you'd live, particularly in the era before antibiotics. A few hours after Mervyn died, the crowd started to arrive at Coogee to see Diver Jackson take on the man-eater. By 10.30, there were thousands of people, but no Diver Jackson. An hour later, a phone call came through to the beach. Diver Jackson said the weather was unfavourable. It was too overcast and, without sufficient light, he couldn't proceed safely. So, he'd try again tomorrow. Same time, same place. The following day, the Daily Telegraph reported 70,000 spectators came to Coogee for the showdown. This was the biggest crowd in the beach's history. A photo showed the seawall and promenade packed with people there to see the war on sharks. Yet they were disappointed again. Diver Jackson was a no-show because the seas were supposedly too rough. An old digger wrote to the sun saying he'd be happy to take Diver Jackson's place. Granted, the man said he'd never worn a diver suit before, but just give him a few hours practice and he'd be ready to go not over the top, but down to the bottom. Then, an actual deep sea veteran, identified as Diver Albert, called Bull Shark on Diver Jackson, saying no one in the profession had ever heard of the man and everything about his claims was fishy. Diver Albert said he'd been diving for 36 years in all parts of the world, including pearling grounds where there were 400 men in the water at one time. He'd never been attacked by a shark, nor known of any diver being attacked. Sharks were timid. They were very unlikely to approach a man in a diving suit. So how was Diver Jackson going to make himself bait? Diver Albert said he had £50 for the man if he could get within 20 feet of a shark. 
Further, he said Diver Jackson's talk about light being not sufficient was ridiculous. If divers waited for perfect skies, they'd never get anything done. He said Diver Jackson wouldn't be able to walk through the breakers in 160 pounds of gear. And this heavy outfit would make it next to impossible to fight a shark, when speed would be of the essence. Besides, he'd barely be able to see the shark through the two four-inch eye windows in the helmet. As Diver Jackson was disappointing the huge crowd, and Diver Albert was claiming that the man was a charlatan, the story took another twist. A twist from beyond the grave. Mervyn Gannon was setting the record straight, at least via his aunt, who'd spoken to the Sunday Times. During the long hours she'd spent by her nephew's bedside, she'd asked him what had happened. Quote, he told me that he was about 15 yards from the beach, and that when he first saw the shark approaching, it was swimming towards him with great speed from the direction of the ocean. When it got up to his right side, he began beating it with his right hand, but the shark was too quick for him, and in an instant, it had taken his hand and turned apparently seawards. The aunt continued. Mervyn said then that he'd turned himself towards the beach in order to escape a second attack, and with the purpose of doing it as speedily as possible, dived and was caught and hurled a little distance by a small roller. When he turned to see if the shark was near him, he found it right beside him, and before he could advance further towards the beach, the monster had bitten him on the right buttock and made off. The aunt went on. He fell and half-struggled to his feet, but his injuries and shock were so great that he collapsed and fell. I asked who it was who rescued him, and he told me that he was not assisted by anyone until he had collapsed and fallen the second time, and then by more than one man. According to this, Mervyn Gannon had mostly saved himself, and he didn't know the identities of those who'd helped him. Mervyn hadn't said anything about Jack, nicknamed Brownie, coming to his assistance. Yet nor had he said anything about his friend, Thomas King, being on the scene. Thomas King gave his story to the Sunday Times too. He said he'd left home about 10 minutes after Mervyn and joined him in the surf where they'd shot some breakers. After catching a wave, quote, I felt what seemed to be a heavy kick on the right thigh. When I cleared my eyes of water, I saw the shark dart at Gannon with the swiftness of an arrow. It must have mistaken him for me. At the same time, the boy cried out, Shark, and began to chop the water with his right hand. In a twinkling, the man-eater, I am sure it was of the grey nurse variety, grabbed him by the right hand. I could distinctly see the hand in the shark's mouth, and the sight will remain on my memory all my life. I think that immediately afterwards, the shark must have nibbled his left hand. That was before I reached him. When I got to the side of him, I caught hold of his left forearm. Another breaker hit us, and when it had rolled, I grabbed his right arm, and with my back towards the shore, pulled him close to me. Then I felt a tug and a pull. His body shook. I looked over his shoulder and saw the shark making out to sea. He said to me, For God's sake, give me a hand out. Mr. Brown had reached me by then, and the both of us dragged him to the beach. It was I who held his arm while he was being attended to on the sand. I was on the point of collapsing myself, and after somebody had given me a glass of brandy, I got dressed and left the beach. Afterwards, I went to Mr. Brown and thanked him for coming to my assistance. Thomas King would say he hadn't seen Ernest Carr in the surf at all. Without saying it in so many words, Thomas King was calling Jack Brown and Ernest Carr liars. Worse than just liars, they were claiming gallant acts they hadn't performed. In this same article, the Sunday Times had interviewed Ernest Carr. 
he repeated his story about getting to Mervyn a second after Jack Brown. Another man named Reg Harrocks of the Coogee Lifesaving Club told the paper he'd seen the two men reach Mervyn around the same time. He believed that Ernest Carr deserved equal credit. Mr Harrocks said he'd not seen Thomas King. So who, if anyone, had rescued Mervyn Gannon? While this was being thrashed out, money for Jack Chalmers just kept pouring in. But with questions raised about Jack Brown, his fund was only approaching £50. On Monday the 6th of March, Mervyn Gannon's funeral procession went from Kinsella's in Oxford Street to Waverley Cemetery. Again, thousands of people turned out and the newspapers sent photographers to capture these crowd scenes. More eyewitnesses to Mervyn Gannon's attack came to the Surf Lifesaving Association. One man said he'd seen a third rescuer coming up the beach behind Jack Brown and Ernest Carr. This fellow, he said, could have been Thomas King. The witness reckoned that Jack Brown and Ernest Carr had only reached Mervyn when he was very close to shore already. Another witness said that Mervyn had been just five yards from shore when Jack Brown got to him, and by then another man, possibly Thomas King, was already helping. Mervyn's guardian aunt from Coonabarabran wanted to go home, so the coroner's inquest was opened early. She testified he'd said, quote, I fought the shark alone, and that I was carried in by a wave. This aunt said that Mervyn had told her he'd only been helped when he was four or five yards from shore. In the wake of this testimony and the new eyewitnesses, Mr Patterson, president of the Surf Lifesaving Association, gave the verdict. He said that Mervyn had been practically ashore in just two or three feet of water when Jack Brown, Ernest Carr and Thomas King had rendered valuable assistance. Quote, Still, the rescue cannot be compared with that of Chalmers and Bow Repair. With that, Jack Brown was downgraded from hero to helper. In response, Jack Brown told the Evening News, quote, I don't want to argue the point over it. I think it is better for me to make no comment. I know what happened, and I won't worry about what anybody else says. Around 7 in the morning on Thursday the 9th of March, just shy of a week after Mervyn Gannon was attacked, Sydney had its first victory in the War on Sharks. A 10-foot tiger had taken a bait and then been harpooned by brave fishermen in the shallows at Coogee. These anglers had been after the monster for the past week. Newsreel cameramen showed up in time for the post-mortem. The shark was sliced open, but it wasn't the man-eater. All its belly contained were fish. Still, it was a great catch and heroic work. The anglers erected a canvas enclosure and charged spectators to get up close. Photos of the shark appeared in the papers, people crowding around it to grin at the camera and put their hands into its mouth. Around this time, two more sharks were caught by trawlers off Coogee. Up in Brisbane, the Telegraph headlined its story, War Against Sharks, the Sydney Offensive, Three Monsters Landed. Within days, Randwick Council would receive information that this tiger shark hadn't been caught at Coogee. It had been hooked at Clovelly and towed along the coast in secret to take advantage of the public mania for shark catching. Similarly, the fishermen aboard those trawlers hadn't caught the sharks off Coogee, but elsewhere along the Sydney coastline. From claim and counterclaim about the Mervyn Gannon rescue, 
To diver Jackson and fishermen willing to dupe the public, it seemed the war on sharks was bringing out the worst in some people. No doubt though, it was entertaining, whether you were reading newspaper stories while riding the tram to work, or standing on the beach, having paid a few pennies to have your photo taken beside a monster of the deep. But in terms of spectacle, nothing could rival the extraordinary scenes that played out at Coogee on Sunday the 12th of March. More people than ever flocked to its sand, shoreline, seawall and streets. Extra trams were put on, but they couldn't cope with the crowds. More tram cars were added, and still they couldn't meet the demand. By 3pm, there were 80,000 to 100,000 people standing and staring at the waves. As the Daily Telegraph put it, quote, It appeared as if all Sydney had turned out. That wasn't quite true, but even 80,000 was an incredible number of spectators, given the entire Sydney metropolitan area was then home to just 900,000 people. The masses had gathered to see the next front in the Shark War. Or, as the Daily Telegraph put it, the intrepid display of the natives. The natives? They were nine men from the Loyalty Islands in New Caledonia. They were then in Sydney as crew aboard the steamer Pacific, and given they had shark hunting experience back home, they had volunteered or been persuaded to go into the waters off Coogee with their knives. There'd been a two-day build-up to this, the Sun having announced on Friday, quote, Coloured men for Coogee sharks. Even the sceptical diver Albert seemed on board, quote, If the Pacific crew take to the water and there are sharks about, there should be a battle royale. Diver Albert said as skin divers, these men were incredible. Quote, They are like fish in the water. They will go right ahead, I'm sure, if there are sharks about. While Diver Jackson had stiffed the crowds, the Loyalty Island men didn't disappoint. Promptly at 3 o'clock on Sunday, these warriors, described as being dressed in loincloths, though photos show them wearing shorts, climbed down a ladder from the clubhouse veranda and went across the rocks to the water. Each was armed with a knife that was connected to his wrist or his waist with a length of cord. Some apparently also carried spears. Into the channel they went, right where Milton Coughlin had been attacked. The men caught a few shoots and then moved out past the breakers of the beach proper. Here, they formed a guard about 15 yards beyond where a few game surf bathers were in the water. The presence of the Loyalty Islanders gave white beachgoers more confidence and a few hundred went in for a splash. The knife-wielding men put on a display, swimming out to bait floats and generally patrolling the waters. A few islanders astounded the crowd when they body surfed up to and landed safely on those rocks. But the ultimate thrill, that battle royale, proved elusive. No sharks were encountered. Newspapers would characterise this as the monsters of the deep having turned coward when faced with blade-wielding native warriors. But the Sydney sportsman quoted one of the islander men saying, It is not at all what we expected. These waters are not clear enough for shark hunting. If any sharks had come, they would have got the lot of us. Out of the water, another battle was still being fought. This one for Jack Brown's reputation. Franco Grady, manager of Coogee Surf Sheds and father of witness Bruce O'Grady, said he'd received 11 new statements from witnesses to say that Jack had done everything claimed for him. These testimonials had been lodged with Randwick Council. 
The Surf Life Saving Association President Mr Patterson said he was prepared to review the decision if necessary, but questioned why these witnesses hadn't come forward before. The question remained, as the Sun headline put it, was it a rescue? On the 15th of March, the coroner's inquest continued. Jack Brown and Ernest Carr told their stories. Thomas King gave his contradictory version. The coroner said all three had been brave and he wasn't going to get into who did what when returning his verdict that Mervyn Gannon had died accidentally from shark bites. Jack Brown went back to work as a council lifesaver, though the Sun newspaper would campaign to present new evidence of his heroism. The Sunday Times and Lifesaving Club funds for Jack Chalmers, which totaled over £1,700, were presented to him to pay off his mortgage. The Lord Mayor's Fund now totaled £2,100. In May 1922, Jack Chalmers insisted that £500 of this go to Frank Beaurepaire, who he said had been right there on the spot and whose presence had stopped the shark from making further attacks. Smaller amounts, in the vicinity of £10, would go to Mr Green and to Mr Fletcher for the assistance they'd rendered. From the £1,600 balance of the Lord Mayor's Fund, £250 would be used on a deposit for a motor lorry so Jack Chalmers could start a carrying business. And the rest would be invested and paid out to him during his lifetime by trustees. But Jack objected to this plan. People hadn't donated their money under this condition. Quote, I am quite competent to manage my own business. I had to manage it when things were much more difficult than they are at present. I am no child and would prefer to control my own affairs. Jack Chalmers got the lump sum. He also got an unlikely new job as leading man in a locally produced feature film called Triumph of Love. This movie would play at the Apollo Cinema in the city in June, Truth Newspaper offering this endorsement. Jack Chalmers, the hero of the Coogee Shark tragedy, is seen at his best in his new sphere of activities in a South Sea Island drama. Some of the scenes in this remarkable production demonstrate the physical and moral courage of the hero, whose name is a household word throughout Australia. The following month, King George V invested Jack Chalmers with the ultimate civilian honour for bravery, the Albert Medal. Both Jack and Frank Beaurepaire would also get the Humane Society's gold medal. As for Jack Brown, through the year, debate continued about whether he was worthy. In November 1922, eight months after Mervyn Gannon had been attacked in the surf, Randwick Council concluded its inquiry into the matter. Eleven witnesses had testified. Thirteen more statutory declarations had been made. On the 29th of November, Randwick Council's Special Committee delivered three findings. Quote, A. That the instant attendant Brown became cognizant of the unfortunate plight of the late Mervyn Gannon in being attacked by a shark, he acted with promptness and exerted himself to the utmost in endeavouring to immediately reach the victim for the purpose of rendering assistance. B. That Attendant Brown entered the water as far as necessary to reach the late Mervyn Gannon and performed a meritorious act in effecting the rescue of a man being attacked by a shark. C. That the foregoing findings be conveyed to Attendant Brown under seal of the council. The verdict was in. As far as Randwick Council was concerned, Jack had performed a rescue and was a hero. Three months later, the Royal Shipwreck Relief and Humane Society awarded Jack its silver medal and Ernest Carr the bronze. 
no recognition was given to Thomas King. What had really happened? It's not possible to say. During the Randwick Council inquiry, some witnesses maintained that Thomas King had rendered assistance first. One man said that Jack Brown had asked him to say that he, Jack, had been in deeper water than he was. And Jack had admitted to writing two of the statements for witnesses. One of the men, he said, had been unable to write, and the other one he'd approached on the beach, but the man's hand had been wet, so Jack had wielded the pen. While this sounded a little dodgy, the majority of the witnesses supported Jack Brown and Ernest Carr's story, and Randwick Council's finding was what it was. Is it possible that everyone was telling the truth as they'd seen it, their perceptions simply distorted by shock and fear? Perhaps, but it also seems that Thomas King's story kind of came out of nowhere. It wasn't supported by Mervyn Gannon's testimony to his aunts in the hospital, or by what any of the initial eyewitnesses had told reporters. Perhaps he had been in the water and had felt guilty at not being able to help his friend, and had consciously or unconsciously reimagined his role. On the flip side of this, Jack Brown may have only been a few yards from shore and only in a few feet of water, and he was the one who misremembered the depth and distance. It's really not possible to say a century later. What is possible to say is that in the wake of Jack Chalmers receiving such incredible recognition from the public, beach heroism in 1922 took on a different dimension. But because of the cloud over Jack Brown and what we'd now call compassion fatigue, he wasn't to receive a reward that could set him up for life. Jack Chalmers, through no fault of his own, enjoyed a wave of generosity that wouldn't be repeated, even when heroic circumstances were beyond doubt. On Sunday the 18th of March 1923, Bondi was hit with heavy seas and several swimmers got into trouble. Thousands of beachgoers saw a young woman named Tui Kirby swept out to sea. A young lifesaver donned a belt and, as the sun put it, quote, dived into a cauldron of mountainous waves and swam out. Word spread and thousands gathered along the cliffs, feeling they were about to see the death of the rescuer and the girl he was trying to save. The Sun reported, To them it seemed an utter impossibility for a swimmer to live even unencumbered in the raging sea. And with the girl as a burden, how could either of them survive? The lifesaver's line became fouled, so he had to get rid of the belt. He was now on his own, swimming in big waves in what were considered shark-infested waters. He powered 400 yards out to Tui Kirby. She was exhausted but alive when he reached her. The lifesaver kept her afloat in the big waves until a boat could get out past the breakers and bring them back to safety. The Sun reported, A spectacular landing was effected, while thousands of people cheered wildly. This hero's name? Bob Chalmers, champion breaststroke swimmer and younger brother to Jack. There'd be a subscription fund for Bob, and it would reach £300. This was not to be sneezed at, but it was also less than one-tenth of his brother's reward. While Bob would be recommended for the Albert Medal, he wouldn't receive it. He would, though, get a gold medal from the Royal Humane Society. While Bob was celebrated, he wasn't accorded the sort of hero status his brother had enjoyed. This was despite him going way out from shore, putting himself at risk not only of sharks, but of drowning, to save a person who had actually survived. Tui Kirby, then 17, would go on to marry, have a child, and live to the ripe old age of 83. 
After all the kerfuffle over what he'd done, Jack Brown continued working as a lifesaver at Coogee Beach. On Friday, the 27th of March, 1925, a shark struck again. 16-year-old James Dagworthy had been surf bathing in water up to his chest when he was attacked. He was bitten below one thigh and washed towards the beach, where he was brought to safety by a lifesaver and inspector named Oliver Irwin. Bleeding heavily, James Dagworthy was rushed to St Vincent's Hospital. Oliver Irwin and Jack Brown, though he was off duty, both went with the boy. Learning that the kid would die without a transfusion, Jack Brown stepped up and gave a pint of his blood. For this, he'd get a merit certificate from the Royal Humane Society. Young James Dagworthy would live, though his leg was amputated below the thigh. He'd remain a prominent member of Coogee Surf Lifesaving Club and die at the age of 54. The day after he gave blood, Jack Brown was back on duty on the beach. Newspaper reporters proved to have short memories. Not connecting beach inspector J.T. Brown with Jack Brown of the Mervyn Gannon Rescue. After 1922, there'd be 14 further known fatal shark attacks in New South Wales during the 1920s. Seven of these would be in the Sydney area, four of them on beaches, and all of those would be in 1929 with two at Bondi. That year also saw a massive crowd turnout at Coogee to see the beach finally enclosed by a shark net. Shark nets followed at other Sydney beaches. As for Jack Chalmers, in 1931, Smith's Weekly said he faced a scarier creature than any shark in the form of that man-eater, Premier Jack Lang. According to Smith, Jack Chalmers' motor lorry business was suffering because he was being slugged 40 pounds a week in taxes under the new Transport Act. The paper said it knew what had happened if Jack Lang should ever face a shark in the water. The monster would blush and apologise. But Jack Lang had been out of office for nearly two years when Jack Chalmers finally filed for bankruptcy in April 1934. In reports then, he did trace his business difficulties back to the Transport Act, but seemed to indicate that his main problems had been his inability to compete with the railways in hauling goods from Sydney to Bathurst in his three-ton truck. Nevertheless, Jack still had a property at Kensington worth £1,200 that he was renting out and he was working as a driver for £5 a week. Relative to a lot of people during the Depression, Jack Chalmers was doing alright. Jack Brown, not so much. On the 4th of October 1936, he died in Sydney Hospital at the age of just 48. The passing of this dedicated public servant, not reported by the newspapers. While Jack Chalmers hadn't managed his reward money as well as he might have, by insisting Frank Beaurepaire be given £500, he changed history. Now Frank was clearly a smart and determined fella, and he might have ended up where he did anyway. But he used that £500 to establish the tyre business that would become Beaurepaire's. Adding business success to sporting prowess, Frank Beaurepaire became one of Australia's most prominent men. He served as Lord Mayor of Melbourne from 1940 to 1942 and was knighted at the end of his term. From 1942 to 1952, he was a Victorian parliamentarian. And in 1948, he was of course instrumental in the campaign that landed the 1956 Olympics for Melbourne. Sadly, Frank died in a barber's chair on the 29th of May 1956, just a few months before the Games began. The cause was a coronary occlusion very possibly a long-term result of the rheumatic fever that had hit him hard when he was a boy learning to become a champion swimmer.
Jack Chalmers, though, kept on keeping on. In 1941, Pix Magazine ran a feature on him and his family. Jack's son Jack was by then married and had recently had a child, so the shark hero was now a grandfather. His daughter Phyllis was a lively teenager who'd entertain the family with her piano playing. At 47, Jack was doing defence work at Mort's Dock, and his brother Bob was the manager of the Granville Baths. These two life-saving heroes would still swim together. Jack Chalmers remained a fixture of Bondi Surf Club until he passed away at the age of 88 in March 1982, 60 years after he'd gone up against that shark at Coogee. Jack's ashes were scattered on his beloved Bondi Beach. As for sharks, well, their lives weren't quite the same after 1922. During the rest of that decade and into the 1930s, surf bathers would be warned out of the water by lifesavers on observation towers and by pilots in spotter planes. Nets stopped sharks from coming onto popular swimming spots on ocean beaches. From the mid-1930s, the few fatal attacks that happened in Sydney occurred in rivers and harbour beaches. Despite fatal attacks being rare, sharks remained the enemy. As we heard in the Mysteries of Mystery Island episode, from the mid-1920s, Charlie Messenger, brother of rugby league legend Dally Messenger, became a Sydney celebrity for his crazy shark hunting exploits. This is the guy who'd ride on the back of a shark as it was hauled in. Charlie and his catches were often the subject of big newspaper photo features. He killed thousands of the so-called man-eaters, paving the way for the later shark hunting celebrity Vic Hislop. The war on sharks would continue unabated for well over half a century. While many species of sharks are now protected, they're still subject to culling programs, resulting in intense criticism from environmental groups. Sharks, of course, are not cuddly creatures. Being devoured by a predator is perhaps the primal fear that humans have, and sharks are the only creature capable of this that most of us have any chance, however small, of encountering. Being aware and even a little scared is entirely natural. But this fear has been stoked endlessly by newspaper and other media reporting since the 1922 attacks. On the day that I record this, news.com.au has a headline, Why Monster Bull Sharks Are in Sydney Harbour. The bull sharks of this piece are referred to as apex predators. Calling them monsters and apex predators harks back to how dead sharks would be labelled man-killers in photos of Charlie Messenger and Vic Hislop with their catches. The irony was that these animals had almost certainly never seen a man until one hauled them from the water and killed them. In terms of casualties in the war on sharks, in July 2015, the Australian Institute of Marine Science estimated that on average about 10 people are killed every year by sharks worldwide. The number of sharks, though, killed directly and indirectly by humans was said to be 100 million. If there is an apex predator, it's not the sharks. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. Supporter funds were used for reference materials to make this episode, as detailed in Part 1. If you'd like to become a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, and this link's also in your show notes. A big shout-out to recent supporter Daniel H. In addition to his show shout-out, supporters also get early ad-free access to regular episodes and bonus shows. 
Recent bonus episodes include the story of the 1851 Black Thursday bushfires that consumed one quarter of Victoria, and the very creepy story of the headless body in the Barwon River near Geelong. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.